totem and taboo resemblances between the psychic lives of savages and neurotics by professor dr sigmund freud translated by a a brill this librivox recording is in the public domain totem and taboo chapter two taboo and the ambivalence of emotion part two a the treatment of enemies inclined as we may have been to ascribe to savage and semi-savage races uninhibited and remorseless cruelty towards their enemies it is of great interest to us to learn that with them too the killing of a person compels the observation of a series of rules which are associated with taboo customs these rules are easily brought under four groups they demand one reconciliation with the slain enemy two restrictions three acts of expiation and purifications of the manslayer and four certain ceremonial rites the incomplete reports do not allow us to decide with certainty how general or how isolated such taboo customs may be among these races but this is a matter of indifference as far as our interest in these occurrences is concerned still it may be assumed that we are dealing with widespread customs and not with isolated peculiarities the reconciliation customs practised on the island of timor after a victorious band of warriors has returned with the severed heads of the vanquished enemy are especially significant because the leader of the expedition is subject to heavy additional restrictions Quote from fraser at the solemn entry of the victors sacrifices are made to conciliate the souls of the enemy otherwise one would have to expect harm to come to the victors a dance is given and a song is sung in which the slain enemy is mourned and his forgiveness is implored be not angry they say because your head is here with us had we been less lucky our heads might have been exposed in your village we have offered the sacrifice to appease you your spirit may now rest and leave us at peace why were you our enemy would it not have been better that we should remain friends then your blood would not have been spilt and your head would not have been cut off similar customs are found among the palu in celebes the galas sacrificed to the spirits of their dead enemies before they returned to their home villages other races have found methods of making friends guardians and protectors out of their former enemies after they are dead this consists in the tender treatment of the severed heads of which many wild tribes of borneo boast when the sea dayaks of sarawak bring home a head from a war expedition they treat it for months with the greatest kindness and courtesy and address it with the most endearing names in their language the best morsels from their meals are put into its mouth together with tidbits and cigars the dead enemy is repeatedly entreated to hate his former friends and to bestow his love upon his new hosts because he has now become one of them it would be a great mistake to think that any derision is attached to this treatment horrible though it may seem to us observers have been struck by the mourning for the enemy after he has slain and scalped among several of the wild tribes of north america when a choctaw had killed an enemy he began a month's mourning during which he submitted himself to serious restrictions the dakota indians mourned in the same way 
one authority mentions that the osaga indians after mourning for their own dead mourned for their foes as if they had been friends before proceeding to the other classes of taboo customs for the treatment of enemies we must define our position in regard to a pertinent objection both fraser as well as other authorities may well be quoted against us to show that the motive for these rules of reconciliation is quite simple and has nothing to do with ambivalence these races are dominated by a superstitious fear of the spirits of the slain a fear which was also familiar to classical antiquity and which the great british dramatist brought upon the stage in the hallucinations of macbeth and richard the third from this superstition all the reconciliation rules as well as the restrictions and expiations which we shall discuss later can be logically deduced moreover the ceremonies included in the fourth group also argue for this interpretation since the only explanation of which they admit is the effort to drive away the spirits of the slain which pursue the manslayers besides the savages themselves directly admit their fear of the spirits of their slain foes and trace back the taboo customs under discussion to this fear this objection is certainly pertinent and if it were adequate as well we would gladly spare ourselves the trouble of our attempt to find a further explanation we postpone the consideration of this objection until later and for the present merely contrast it to the interpretation derived from our previous discussion of taboo all these rules of taboo lead us to conclude that other impulses besides those that are merely hostile find expression in the behavior towards enemies we see in them manifestations of repentance a regard for the enemy and of a bad conscience for having slain him it seems that the commandment thou shalt not slay which could not be violated without punishment existed also among these savages long before any legislation was received from the hands of a god we now return to the remaining classes of taboo rules the restrictions laid upon the victorious manslayer are unusually frequent and are mostly of a serious nature in timor compare the reconciliation customs mentioned above the leader of the expedition cannot return to his house under any circumstances a special hut is erected for him in which he spends two months engaged in the observance of various rules of purification during this period he may not see his wife or nourish himself another person must put his food into his mouth among some dayak tribes warriors returning from a successful expedition must remain sequestered for several days and abstain from certain foods they may not touch iron and must remain away from their wives in logia an island near new guinea men who have killed an enemy or have taken part in the killing lock themselves up in their houses for a week they avoid every intercourse with their wives and friends they do not touch their victuals with their hands and live on nothing but vegetable foods which are cooked for them in special dishes as a reason for this last restriction it is alleged that they must smell the blood of the slain otherwise they would sicken and die among the toaripi or motumotu tribes of new guinea a manslayer must not approach his wife and must not touch his food with his fingers a second person must feed him with special food 
this continues until the next new moon i avoid the complete enumeration of all the cases of restrictions of the victorious slayer mentioned by fraser and emphasize only such cases in which the character of taboo is especially noticeable or where the restriction appears in connection with expiation purification and ceremonial among the monumbos in german new guinea a man who has killed an enemy in combat becomes unclean the same word being employed which is applied to women during menstruation or confinement for a considerable period he is not allowed to leave the men's clubhouse while the inhabitants of his village gather about him and celebrate his victory with songs and dances he must not touch any one not even his wife and children if he did so they would be afflicted with boils he finally becomes clean through washing and other ceremonies among the natchez in north america young warriors who had procured their first scalp were bound for six months to the observance of certain renunciations they were not allowed to sleep with their wives or to eat meat and received only fish and maize pudding as nourishment when a choctaw had killed and scalped an enemy he began a period of mourning for one month during which he was not allowed to comb his hair when his head itched he was not allowed to scratch it with his hand but used a small stick for this purpose after a pima indian had killed an apache he had to submit himself to severe ceremonies of purification and expiation during a fasting period of sixteen days he was not allowed to touch meat or salt to look at a fire or to speak to any one he lived alone in the woods where he was waited upon by an old woman who brought him a small allowance of food he often bathed in the nearest river and carried a lump of clay on his head as a sign of mourning on the seventeenth day there took place a public ceremony through which he and his weapons were solemnly purified as the pima indians took the manslayer taboo much more seriously than their enemies and unlike them did not postpone expiation and purification until the end of the expedition their prowess in war suffered very much through their moral severity or what might be called their piety in spite of their extraordinary bravery they proved to be unsatisfactory allies to the americans in their wars against the apaches the detail and variations of these expiatory and purifying ceremonies after the killing of an enemy would be most interesting for purposes of a more searching study but i need not enumerate any more of them here because they cannot furnish us with any new points of view i might mention that the temporary or permanent isolation of the professional executioner which was maintained up to our time is a case in point the position of the freeholder in medieval society really conveys a good idea of the taboo of savages the current explanation of all these rules of reconciliation restriction expiation and purification combines two principles namely the extension of the taboo of the dead to everything that has come into contact with him and the fear of the spirit of the slain in what combination these two elements are to explain the ceremonial whether they are to be considered as of equal value or whether one of them is primary and the other secondary and which one is nowhere stated nor would this be an easy matter to decide 
in contradistinction to all this we emphasize the unity which our interpretation gains by deducing all these rules from the ambivalence of the emotion of savages toward their enemies b the taboo of rulers the behavior of primitive races toward their chiefs kings and priests is controlled by two principles which seem rather to supplement than to contradict each other they must both be guarded and be guarded against both objects are accomplished through innumerable rules of taboo why one must guard against rulers is already known to us because they are the bearers of that mysterious and dangerous magic power which communicates itself by contact like an electrical charge bringing death and destruction to any one not protected by a similar charge all direct or indirect contact with this dangerous sacredness is therefore avoided and where it cannot be avoided a ceremonial has been found to ward off the dreaded consequences the nubas in east africa for instance believe that they must die if they enter the house of their priest king but that they escape this danger if on entering they bear the left shoulder and induce the king to touch it with his hand thus we have the remarkable case of the king's touch becoming the healing and protective measure against the very dangers that arise from contact with the king but it is probably a question of the healing power of the intentional touching on the king's part in contradistinction to the danger of touching him in other words of the opposition between passivity and activity towards the king where the healing power of the royal touch is concerned we do not have to look for examples among savages in comparatively recent times the kings of england exercised this power upon scrofula whence it was called the king's evil neither queen elizabeth nor any of her successors renounced this part of the royal prerogative charles i is said to have healed a hundred sufferers at one time in the year sixteen thirty three under his dissolute son charles II, after the great english revolution had passed royal healings of scrofula attained their greatest vogue this king is said to have touched close to a hundred thousand victims of scrofula in the course of his reign the crush of those seeking to be cured used to be so great that on one occasion six or seven patients suffered death by suffocation instead of being healed the sceptical king of orange william III, who became king of england after the banishment of the stuarts refused to exercise the spell on the one occasion when he consented to practise the touch he did so with the words may god give you better health and more sense the following account will bear witness to the terrible effect of touching by virtue of which a person even though unintentionally becomes active against his king or against what belongs to him a chief of high rank and great holiness in new zealand happened to leave the remains of his meal by the roadside a young slave came along a strong healthy fellow who saw what was left over and started to eat it hardly had he finished when a horrified spectator informed him of his offence in eating the meal of the chief the man had been a strong brave warrior but as soon as he heard this he collapsed and was afflicted by terrible convulsions from which he died toward sunset of the following day 
a maori woman ate a certain fruit and then learned that it came from a place on which there was a taboo she cried out that the spirit of the chief whom she had thus offended would surely kill her this incident occurred in the afternoon and on the next day at twelve o'clock she was dead the tinder-box of a maori chief once cost several persons their lives the chief had lost it and those who found it used it to light their pipes when they learned whose property the tinder-box was they all died of fright it is hardly astonishing that the need was felt to isolate dangerous persons like chiefs and priests by building a wall around them which made them inaccessible to others we surmise that this wall which originally was constructed out of taboo rules still exists to-day in the form of court ceremony but probably the greater part of this taboo of the rulers cannot be traced back to the need of guarding against them the other point of view in the treatment of privileged persons the need of guarding them from dangers with which they are threatened has had a distinct share in the creation of taboo and therefore of the origin of court etiquette the necessity of guarding the king from every conceivable danger arises from his great importance for the weal and woe of his subjects strictly speaking he is a person who regulates the course of the world his people have to thank him not only for rain and sunshine which allow the fruits of the earth to grow but also for the wind which brings the ships to their shores and for the solid ground on which they set their feet these savage kings are endowed with a wealth of power and an ability to bestow happiness which only gods possess certainly in later stages of civilization none but the most servile courtiers would play the hypocrite to the extent of crediting their sovereigns with the possession of attributes similar to these it seems like an obvious contradiction that persons of such perfection of power should themselves require the greatest care to guard them against threatening dangers but this is not the only contradiction revealed in the treatment of royal persons on the part of savages these races consider it necessary to watch over their kings to see that they use their powers in the right way they are by no means sure of their good intentions or of their conscientiousness a strain of mistrust is mingled with the motivation of the taboo rules for the king the idea that early kingdoms are despotisms says fraser in which the people exist only for the sovereign is wholly inapplicable to the monarchies we are considering on the contrary the sovereign in them exists only for his subjects his life is only valuable so long as he discharges the duties of his position by ordering the course of nature for his people's benefit so soon as he fails to do so the care the devotion the religious homage which they had hitherto lavished on him cease and are changed into hatred and contempt he is ignominiously dismissed and may be thankful if he escapes with his life worshipped as a god one day he is killed as a criminal the next but in this changed behavior of the people there is nothing capricious or inconsistent on the contrary their conduct is quite consistent if their king is their god he is or should be also their preserver and if he will not preserve them he must make room for another who will so long however as he answers their expectations there is no limit to the care which they take of him 
and which they compel him to take of himself a king of this sort lives hedged in by ceremonious etiquette a network of prohibitions and observances of which the intention is not to contribute to his dignity much less to his comfort but to restrain him from conduct which by disturbing the harmony of nature might involve himself his people and the universe in one common catastrophe far from adding to his comfort these observances by trammelling his every act annihilate his freedom and often render the very life which it is their object to preserve a burden and sorrow to him one of the most glaring examples of thus fettering and paralyzing a holy ruler through taboo ceremonial seems to have been reached in the life routine of the mikado of japan as it existed in earlier centuries a description which is now over two hundred years old relates quote, from kempfer history of japan he thinks that it would be very prejudicial to his dignity and holiness to touch the ground with his feet for this reason when he intends to go anywhere he must be carried thither on men's shoulders much less will they suffer that he should expose his sacred person to the open air and the sun is not thought worthy to shine on his head there is such a holiness ascribed to all the parts of his body that he dares to cut off neither his hair nor his beard nor his nails however lest he should grow too dirty they may clean him in the night when he is asleep because they say that what is taken from the body at that time hath been stolen from him and that such a theft does not prejudice his holiness or dignity in ancient times he was obliged to sit on the throne for some hours every morning with the imperial crown on his head but to sit altogether like a statue without stirring either hands or feet head or eyes nor indeed any part of his body because by this means it was thought that he could preserve peace and tranquillity in his empire for if unfortunately he turned himself on one side or other or if he looked a good while towards any part of his dominion it was apprehended that war famine fire or some other great misfortune was near at hand to desolate the country some of the taboos to which barbarian kings are subject vividly recall the restrictions placed on murderers on shark point at cape pedron in lower guinea west africa a priest king called kukulu lives alone in a woods he is not allowed to touch a woman or to leave his house and cannot even rise out of his chair in which he must sleep in a sitting position if he should lie down the wind would cease and the shipping would be disturbed it is his function to keep storms in check and in general to see to an even healthy condition of the atmosphere the more powerful a king of loango is says bastian the more taboos he must observe the heir to the throne is also bound to them from childhood on they accumulate about him while he is growing up and by the time of his accession he is suffocated by them our interest in the matter does not require us to take up more space to describe more fully the taboos that cling to royal and priestly dignity we merely add that restrictions as to freedom of movement and diet play the main role among them 
but two examples of taboo ceremonial taken from civilized nations and therefore from much higher stages of culture will indicate to what an extent association with these privileged persons tends to preserve ancient customs the flamen dialis the high priest of jupiter in rome had to observe an extraordinarily large number of taboo rules he was not allowed to ride to see a horse or an armed man to wear a ring that was not broken to have a knot in his garments to touch wheat flour or leaven or even to mention by name a goat a dog raw meat beans and ivy his hair could only be cut by a free man and with a bronze knife his hair combings and nail parings had to be buried under a lucky tree he could not touch the dead go into the open with a bare head and similar prohibitions his wife the flamenica also had her own prohibitions she was not allowed to ascend more than three steps on a certain kind of stairs and on certain holidays she could not comb her hair the leather for her shoes could not be taken from any animal that had died a natural death but only from one that had been slaughtered or sacrificed when she heard thunder she was unclean until she had made an expiatory sacrifice the old kings of ireland were subject to a series of very curious restrictions the observance of which was expected to bring every blessing to the country while their violation entailed every form of evil the complete description of these taboos is given in the book of rites of which the oldest manuscript copies bear the dates thirteen ninety and fourteen eighteen the prohibitions are very detailed and concern certain activities at specified places and times in some cities for instance the king cannot stay on a certain day of the week while at some specified hour this or that river may not be crossed or again there is a plain on which he cannot camp a full nine days etc among many savage races the severity of the taboo restrictions for the priest kings has had results of historic importance which are especially interesting from our point of view the honor of being a priest king ceased to be desirable the person in line for the succession often used every means to escape it thus in cambodia where there is a fire and water king it is often necessary to use force to compel the successor to accept the honor on Niue or savage island a coral island in the pacific ocean monarchy actually came to an end because nobody was willing to undertake the responsible and dangerous office in some parts of west africa a general council is held after the death of the king to determine upon the successor the man on whom the choice falls is seized tied and kept in custody in the fetish house until he has declared himself willing to accept the crown sometimes the presumptive successor to the throne finds ways and means to avoid the intended honor thus it is related of a certain chief that he used to go armed day and night and resist by force every attempt to place him on the throne among the negroes of sierra leone the resistance against accepting the kingly honor was so great that most of the tribes were compelled to make strangers their kings 
Fraser makes these conditions responsible for the fact that in the development of history a separation of the original priest kingship into a spiritual and a secular power finally took place. Kings, crushed by the burden of their holiness, became incapable of exercising their power over real things and had to leave this to inferior but executive persons who were willing to renounce the honors of royal dignity. From these there grew up the secular rulers, while the spiritual overlordship, which was now of no practical importance, was left to the former taboo kings. It is well known to what extent this hypothesis finds confirmation in the history of old Japan. A survey of the picture of the relations of primitive peoples to their rulers gives rise to the expectation that our advance from description to psychoanalytic understanding will not be difficult. These relations are of an involved nature and are not free from contradictions. Rulers are granted great privileges which are practically cancelled by taboo prohibitions in regard to other privileges. They are privileged persons. They can do or enjoy what is withheld from the rest through taboo. But in contrast to this freedom, they are restricted by other taboos which do not affect the ordinary individual here therefore is the first contrast which amounts almost to a contradiction between an excess of freedom and an excess of restriction as applied to the same persons they are credited with extraordinary magic powers and contact with their person or their property is therefore feared while on the other hand the most beneficial effect is expected from these contacts this seems to be a second and an especially glaring contradiction but we have already learned that it is only apparent the king's touch exercised by him with benevolent intention heals and protects it is only when a common man touches the king or his royal effects that the contact becomes dangerous and this is probably because the act may recall aggressive tendencies Another contradiction, which is not so easily solved, is expressed in the fact that great power over the processes of nature is ascribed to the ruler, and yet the obligation is felt to guard him with especial care against threatening dangers, as if his own power, which can do so much, were incapable of accomplishing this. A further difficulty in the relation arises because there is no confidence that the ruler will use his tremendous power to the advantage of his subjects, as well as for his own protection. He is therefore distrusted, and surveillance over him is considered to be justified. The taboo etiquette, to which the life of the king is subject, simultaneously serves all these objects of exercising a tutelage over the king of guarding him against dangers and of guarding his subjects against danger which he brings to them we are inclined to give the following explanation of the complicated and contradictory relation of primitive peoples to their rulers through superstition as well as through other motives various tendencies find expression in the treatment of kings each of which is developed to the extreme without regard to the others as a result of this, contradictions arise at which the intellect of savages takes no more offense than a highly civilized person would, as long as it is only a question of religious matters or of loyalty. That would be so far so good, 
but the psychoanalytic technique may enable us to penetrate more deeply into the matter and to add something about the nature of these various tendencies if we subject the facts as stated to analysis just as if they formed the symptoms of a neurosis our first attention would be directed to the excess of anxious worry which is said to be the cause of the taboo ceremonial the occurrence of such excessive tenderness is very common in the neurosis and especially in the compulsion neurosis upon which we are drawing primarily for our comparison we now thoroughly understand the origin of this tenderness it occurs wherever besides the predominant tenderness there exists a contrary but unconscious stream of hostility that is to say where the typical case of an ambivalent affective attitude is realized the hostility is then cried down by an excessive increase of tenderness which is expressed as anxiety and becomes compulsive because otherwise it would not suffice for its task of keeping the unconscious opposition in a state of repression every psychoanalyst knows how infallibly this anxious excess of tenderness can be resolved even under the most improbable circumstances as for instance when it appears between mother and child or in the case of affectionate married people applied to the treatment of privileged persons this theory of an ambivalent feeling would reveal that their veneration their very deification is opposed in the unconscious by an intense hostile tendency so that as we had expected the situation of an ambivalent feeling is here realized the distrust which certainly seems to contribute to the motivation of the royal taboo would be another direct manifestation of the same unconscious hostility indeed the ultimate issues of this conflict show such a diversity among different races that we would not be at a loss for examples in which the proof of such hostility would be much easier we learn from fraser that the savage timis of sierra leone reserve the right to administer a beating to their elected king on the evening before his coronation and that they make use of this constitutional right with such thoroughness that the unhappy ruler sometimes does not long survive his accession to the throne for this reason the leaders of the race have made it a rule to elect some man against whom they have a particular grudge nevertheless even in such glaring cases the hostility is not acknowledged as such but is expressed as if it were a ceremonial another trait in the attitude of primitive races toward their rulers recalls a mechanism which is universally present in mental disturbances and is openly revealed in the so-called delusions of persecution here the importance of a particular person is extraordinarily heightened and his omnipotence is raised to the improbable in order to make it easier to attribute to him the responsibility for everything painful which happens to the patient savages really do not act differently towards their rulers when they ascribe to them power over rain and shine wind and weather and then dethrone or kill them because nature has disappointed their expectation of a good hunt or a ripe harvest the prototype which the paranoiac reconstructs in his persecution mania is found in the relation of the child to its father 
such omnipotence is regularly attributed to the father in the imagination of the son and distrust of the father has been shown to be intimately connected with the highest esteem for him when a paranoiac names a person of his acquaintance as his persecutor he thereby elevates him to the paternal succession and brings him under conditions which enable him to make him responsible for all the misfortune which he experiences thus this second analogy between the savage and the neurotic may allow us to surmise how much in the relation of the savage to his ruler arises from the infantile attitude of the child to its father but the strongest support for our point of view which seeks to compare taboo prohibitions with neurotic symptoms is to be found in the taboo ceremonial itself the significance of which for the status of kinship has already been subject of our previous discussion this ceremonial unmistakably reveals its double meaning and its origin from ambivalent tendencies if only we are willing to assume that the effects it produces are those which it intended from the very beginning it not only distinguishes kings and elevates them above all ordinary mortals but it also makes their life a torture and an unbearable burden and forces them into a thraldom which is far worse than that of their subjects it would thus be the correct counterpart to the compulsive action of the neurosis in which the suppressed impulse and the impulse which suppresses it meet in mutual and simultaneous satisfaction the compulsive action is nominally a protection against the forbidden action but we would say that actually it is a repetition of what is forbidden the word nominally is here applied to the conscious whereas the word actually applies to the unconscious instance of the psychic life thus also the taboo ceremonial of kings is nominally an expression of the highest veneration and a means of guarding them actually it is the punishment for their elevation the revenge which their subjects take upon them the experiences which cervantes makes sancho panza undergo as governor on his island have evidently made him recognize this interpretation of courtly ceremonial as the only correct one it is very possible that this point would be corroborated if we could induce kings and rulers of to-day to express themselves on this point why the emotional attitude toward rulers should contain such a strong unconscious share of hostility is a very interesting problem which however exceeds the scope of this book we have already referred to the infantile father complex we may add that an investigation of the early history of kingship would bring the decisive explanations fraser has an impressive discussion of the theory that the first kings were strangers who after a short reign were destined to be sacrificed at solemn festivals as representatives of the deity but fraser himself does not consider his facts altogether convincing christian myths are said to have been still influenced by the after-effects of this evolution of kings. End of chapter 2, part 2 Read by Mary Schneider